0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. I say it every, every week, but I always feel so guilty making conversations stop by interrupting. It's awesome to see people connect. And I know we're, we're hungry for connection Uh, And and like we've been saying, uh, you know, when service gets over and people begin stacking chairs, that might make you feel like it's time just to leave, but I want to encourage you, even though we might stack chairs at the end of service, that in no way says you ought to go. In fact, we want you to maybe stack a chair, but please stick around, have conversations. Let's utilize this time to connect with one another. We only get an hour or so a week to connect as the body of Christ like this, so take advantage of Sunday mornings, both the meet and greet, but after service, I would love it if you guys would stick around and get to know one another. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're glad that you're worshiping with us today. I, I, it's like Brent said earlier, I welcome those of you that are here in the, in the worship center or, or the sanctuary. Uh, welcome the folks out in Overflow and, the, of course, the men and women who tune in online. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And, and happy Mother's Day. I'm mindful of the, the mothers in my life. Of course, I have, a, I have a grandmother who's 99. I'm thinking of her and my sister-in-laws and all these mothers that I know. But I, I'm mindful today of my own mom. My mom's had a long, difficult year. Uh, and my mom and throughout the course of her life has modeled resolve and especially this year with all these health challenges she's modeled such resolve i'm thankful for her thankful for my wife who's been uh, just an incredible mother and it's been an honor for 20 years for me to watch my wife uh, raise my kids and and co-parent with me and i'm mindful today of my daughter this is her first mother's day it's been such a joy to watch her be a mom to my little grandson over the last 10 months And and I'm mindful of many of you that are here today. I know that Mother's Day is is one of those days where we celebrate moms, and and for many of us it's a great day of celebration, but I also recognize that Mother's Day can be a very difficult day for some. I know that there's some of you here today on Mother's Day, it's a reminder of your mother who's no longer with us, and so it's a time of grief, though you remember her maybe with joy in your heart, it's a time of of grief on Mother's Day. I'm mindful of those of you here today who maybe um, have to deal with the unspeakable, uh, searing pain of losing a child. And Mother's Day can be a very difficult day. My, my sister has lost two children, and I always think of her on Mother's Day. It's an unspeakably difficult day for her. I'm mindful of those of you here today who maybe when it comes to your relationship with your mom, it's a, it's a pained or a strained relationship or an absent relationship or an abusive relationship, and that brings up whole other sorts of things. I'm mindful of those of you here today who have prayed and desired for motherhood, and for whatever reason, God just didn't give you that, it uh, didn't answer that prayer in the way in which you desired for it to be answered. And so for as many who joyfully celebrate Mother's Day, there are many here who who, this day is a difficult day. But as we remember and as we honor mothers and we think of the beauty of motherhood, this God-ordained relationship that gives him glory, I'm thankful for our God. I'm thankful that we can look to him and celebrate the mothers in our life. And I'm thankful that we can look to him today and he can give us comfort. Would you pray with me? Father, thankful for the men and women you've gathered here this morning. God, thankful for the mothers in the room today. And God, I'm i 'm mindful of those today who who celebrate mother 's Day, but maybe there 's also an aspect of this day that, that brings up some some difficult things and so God, I just pray that you would draw near to those to those people who are here this morning. God thank you for for ordaining motherhood the way that you have for the way that it, it, uh, it points to you. It gives you glory. God today would you meet us in this place? God comfort us, but also God, as we open up your word and as we get ready to, to study from the book of Genesis, God would you give us understanding? Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, God, a heart that can obediently respond to the things that you're going to reveal to us today in this place, God. We, we, we boldly invite you to meet us here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have these, these two friends that are married. I, I met them nine and a half years ago when I was preparing to plant a church in Milwaukee. Their names are Ben and Jill. Ben and Jill got married, uh, struggled with infertility, and then they decided to begin to foster. This is before I met them. And when I met them, they had a little uh, infant boy and a little toddler daughter who were both foster children. And I watched Ben and Jill love those kids, and I watched as God gave them the gift of adoption, and they got to grow their family. And, And we got to watch as this beautiful family of four just kind of lived out this just beautiful thing. It was just so neat to see God bless their family in that way. And kind of just living the, the, the American dream, if you will. And then, uh, several years after the adoption of their two, their two children, uh, they got the call from the state or from the county where there were three other children. Their parents had been, had their, their parental rights terminated. And these three kids were siblings. And they had been bounced around from foster family to foster family from foster family. And they were at a point now where the parents' rights had been terminated and the kids were going to get split up and sent to different homes. And so this representative from the state of Wisconsin called my friends Ben and Jill, knowing that they were adoptive parents, and they said, Hey, I know you have 24 hours to make a decision. Would you be willing to adopt these three preschool and elementary age kids and grow your family from four to a family of seven? And they prayed about it, and they agreed. And overnight, their family almost doubled in size. And I watched as Ben and Jill loved these kids and, and, and welcomed them into their home, and they were their very own kids. It was a beautiful thing to see, but, but these kids came from such pain. Their biological parents had abused and abandoned them, left unspeakable scars. And then they were bounced around from foster system to foster home to foster home. And and time and time again, the people that said they loved them and were going to care for them failed to do so. And so these kids, damaged and wounded, showed up in Ben and Jill's home, this loving home. And Ben and Jill loved them. But the thing they began to notice was these kids... Uh, because they had been so wounded by people that were supposed to love them, they had begun to develop a way of coping, and, and because it was so painful for them to be removed from families that said they loved them, but then they got removed from those families, is in the, the armchair psychologist says, these kids are, are trying to, they're sabotaging this parent-child relationship, so on their terms, the relationship can end. And so these broken kids would run away, they would threaten suicidal ideation, they would throw temper tantrums, and, the, and Ben and Jill's home was very, very difficult for many years, but they resolved to love, they, they were their kids, there's, 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 nothing was going to ever change that, and Ben and Jill just modeled this mothering and this fathering that was just so beautiful because they loved their kids, even when it was most difficult, and they would share with me these stories, these heartbreaking stories of these kids trying desperately to kick and punch and push and, and, and get them to, to just leave just leave me, just leave me. I'm not worthy of love, is essentially what these kids were saying to their parents. And I would listen to Ben and Jill's. they would talk about how they would pull their kids near to them and they would say, no matter how much you run and fight and kick, my love for you will never end. This will always be your home. Ben would say, I, I will always be your father. Nothing will ever change that. And I've watched as these kids have settled into their home and and I'm watching this family blossom from afar. Essentially what Ben and Jill were saying to these kids is, you can't out-naughty our love. Our love will always win. In Ben and Jill's home, when sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. When something abounds, it it exists in large numbers or amounts. Have you heard that phrase before, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Have you heard that phrase? It actually comes from the Bible. It comes from Romans chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the sin of Adam, and the death that it brought, and the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ, and the salvation that it brought. Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death through Adam, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, as as Christians, when we look at God's love for us, when all is said and done, grace wins. In the end, grace reigns over and among God's people through the righteousness of Christ displayed on the cross. The result is eternal life for all who trust and believe in him. And according to Paul here in Romans 5, the, the strongest possible reversal of all the failures of Adam are met in Jesus. Grace wins when sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. We see this in the book of Genesis. I would encourage you, if you brought your Bibles today, to open up to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter today. We're going to finish up chapter 9. We've been calling this series The Beginning. We've begun it back uh, in November. We have just a handful of weeks left. We're going to preach through the 11th chapter, and then we're going to hop into some new things for the summer. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Jeremy, he, he taught us on the Noahic Covenant. Genesis 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. And after the sinful corruption of humanity broke the heart of God, caused God to grieve, the, the floodwaters of judgment swept over the earth. And then as the floodwaters receded and Noah and his family came off the ark, we watched as God graciously established his covenant with Noah upon this recreated or this renewed earth. And sure, on one hand, God's response to human failure was, was just judgment, was disappointment. But ultimately, God responded with a loving and gracious covenant. You see, in God's economy, when sin abounds, he doubles down on his commitment to save. And we see that same pattern at play again in our text today, beginning in verse 18. I'll read through the rest of the chapter. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I want to just kind of give you, uh, orient you a little bit to the text, and what we're gonna be journeying through today as we look at this passage. I want to show you kind of the, the notes ahead ahead of time, the outline. We're talking about the post-flood world here, and we're gonna see that in the post-flood world, there was a post-flood people. We see this in the first couple of verses. Next, in verses 22 through 23, we see a post-flood sin, and in that sin, we'll see that sin is both sinfully exposed and sin is also graciously covered, and then the last point in the text we're going to see in verses 24 through 29 today is that in the post-flood world, we see curse and blessing. So in the post-flood world, there are people, there's sin, and there's curse and blessing, and we'll journey through that together. Can you imagine the scene, right? If you were here last week, Jeremy taught on the Noahic covenant. It was this beautiful scene. Can you imagine Noah, this kind of second Adam, this kind of do-over for humankind? Can you imagine him standing in the new world as this, as this, this type of new Adam? after faithfully building the ark and surviving the flood and waiting in the ark after it came to rest on the mountains and waiting for the voice of God, upon upon the the voice of God, Noah walks off the ark and the first thing he does when his feet hit dry ground is he builds an altar and he worships God, making an offering unto God. I mean, what else would you expect from a man who had been described in previous chapters as being a man who had found favor with God? He was a righteous man. Noah found uh, in his generation to be blameless he was a man who walked faithfully with God. And then in the the latter part of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, we see God making covenant with Noah. God says that he'll never again flood the earth. He he puts a sign of his covenant in the sky, a a beautiful, brilliant, multicolored, arcing rainbow. And so there's Noah. The promise of God is stretched across the sky, this This noble man, this righteous man, is framed by the multicolored bow. The dawn of a new day is spreading across the planet, the renewed planet. The hope of of a new day is spread across the renewed earth. Can you see that scene? New life springing up everywhere. Here's Noah, the ark in the sky. What a day. Can you feel the hope? I mean, what could go wrong? Well, at first, nothing. In the first couple verses, it's really benign. We read in the verses 18 and 19, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark. And we read the names of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 19 tells us that these three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, all the people of the earth were dispersed. And so the first thing I'd encourage you to write down simply is this. The first thing we see in this post-flood world are the post-flood people. It's the first thing we see. We see the post-flood people in verses 18 and 19. The entire earth's population was eight people at the beginning. These verses here serve as both a conclusion to the flood narrative and an introduction into the narrative here that talks about Noah's drunkenness. They also serve as a transition between the two different narratives. And it's relatively basic and boring, right? Uh, Noting that Noah and his three sons came off the ark along with their wives, All the populations of the world stem from these eight people. There's there's not much going on here, but there is one unique little thing that we are intended to see. Did you catch it? Did you catch the parenthetical statement at the end of verse 18? It's it's, it's included for a reason. It says that Ham was the father of Canaan. So the son of of Noah, Ham, he was the father of Canaan and the Canaanites. This bit of information is crucial to, to what we read as Genesis unfolds and as we get into Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch. The word Canaan, if you're a Bible reader or familiar with the Bible, the word Canaan or the Canaanite should be a very familiar name. It's mentioned over 150 times in the Old Testament. Canaan was a land and a people known as the Canaanites. They were known to be a corrupt and a wicked and an idolatrous people. And as you look at the story of Israel, God's covenant people, much of their story is interwoven with the Canaanites as the, the biblical narrative unfolds. It was the land of Canaan that was the promised land that the Israelites were to go take as the book of Exodus unfolds. And we get into the book of Joshua. And so the inclusion of this little bit of information is important because remember the original audience the original hearers of Genesis, remember Moses is the author, and Moses is leading, he's the deliverer, he's leading the people of God, he's leading them through the Exodus into the promised land, and they're going to go where the Canaanites dwell, so that original audience would have heard, hey, this is where the Canaanites came from. It was an important bit of information for these people. Their ears would have been peaked. So this is the first thing I simply just want you to see. We'll come back to this here in a little bit. But even as we look at this, even as we see the, the, the post-flood people, Noah hasn't done anything wrong. He's still, his, his sterling reputation is still intact. We can still imagine righteous Noah surrounded by his family with the resplendent rainbow arched over his head. And as soon as life begins to resume to normal, Noah puts his hand to, to some, some farming work. He, he cultivates some vineyards. And that's when things take a turn for the worse. Let's read again verses 20 through 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Secondly, I want you to write this thing down. Here's the second thing we see. In the post-flood world, we see post-flood sin. In the post-flood world, we see post-flood sin here in verses 20 through 23. First, we see Noah's sin. And we're reminded as... as as we look at Noah's sin, we're reminded that as we go back to the, the, the narrative here that we've been reading over the last several weeks and several months, the, the flood narrative, there was an intentional, there was a purposeful uh, picture of decreation taking place at the flood. So God sort of decreated everything he had made because his heart was grieved at the vileness of humankind. And then through Noah and through the flood waters, then the receding flood waters, there was this picture of recreation. So we've sort of seen this parallel in the Noahic account of, 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 of Genesis 1. 1 and 2 we've seen it paralleled here in the flood account and that that continues this sort of paralleling continues even in our little passage here we we see a parallel between Genesis 1 and 2 and in the flood account look at here in the verses 20 and 21 the, the the parallel between Genesis 3 is stark just as God had planted a garden for Adam and Eve here we see Noah having cultivated a garden a vineyard In both cases, the garden was meant to be a blessing from God, and in both cases, the blessing was perverted by human sinfulness. Just as Adam and Eve sinfully indulged in the fruit of the garden, so to hear Noah is sinfully indulging in the fruit of the vineyard. Just as Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to their nakedness upon the indulgence of the fruit, so to hear Noah lay shamefully naked in the aftermath of his indulgence. The devastating effects of sin that brought the fall in Genesis 3 are still being felt here in this renewed, recreated earth in Genesis chapter 9. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 2 before sin, there's this beautiful picture of humanity being naked and not ashamed, this beautiful picture of intimacy with one another and with God. Fast forward to our text today, here's Noah lying naked and ashamed, and we are made painfully aware that the world, this recreated, renewed world, is still afflicted with the horrors of human sin. This this Hebrew word for lay uncovered is galah. It's a reflexive which emphasizes that Noah uncovered himself. So Noah's nakedness was an intentional nakedness. It was not an accident. Here's Noah, blackout drunk, stripped stripped naked, passed out in his tent, exposing himself to anyone who would look on. One preacher said it this way, Having uncovered himself, Noah therefore covered himself with shame and disgrace. So the great hope of a, of a renewed, recreated, revitalized world, uh, this great hope that, that Noah was a new Adam, that, that humanity had a chance to get it right, uh, this great hope is just, it's dashed. I mean, if you hadn't been familiar with this story, and if you were a first-time reader of the biblical narrative, you as a reader might think, you know, this, this is the great hope. Humanity got it wrong, Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was corrupt, God floods, he's got this new guy, this righteous guy who's blameless in his generation, who walks with God, who finds favor with God, this is going to be different. And as you read the pre-flood the world, it was just an awful world. The the sin of the pre-flood world, it led to to Adam and Eve rebelling from God. It led to to Cain slaughtering his brother in jealousy. It led to Lamech killing a child for daring to touch him. It led to perversion so perverse and so sexually twisted that the whole of humanity was corrupted. It led to God with a grieved heart bringing the floodwaters of judgment across the planet Earth And you had hoped that maybe Noah, it was going to be different, but then as we read today, Noah stumbles drunk into his tent and the hope that sin was left behind in the pre-flood world is now dashed. The great hope Noah lies shamefully drunk, exposed, willfully exposed in his tent. And we realize that sin did not end with the flood. Sin went into the ark. Sin came off the ark. Sin conquered Noah and now sin was on full display. The sad truth is that Noah could not make it on his own. He was a terribly flawed man. He needed help from beyond himself. Noah needed God's grace, just like you and me. With his father's sin on full display, what does Ham do? Verse 22 tells us the Ham, who the father of Canaan, it mentions that a second time, saw the nakedness of his dad, and he told his two brothers who are outside, so what does Ham do? He, rather than let this indiscretion, rather than show grace, he, he exploits his father's nakedness. He, he, he looks at it, and then he shines a flashlight on it, and he runs and he tells his brothers, further inducing shame upon his father. He took some sort of perverse pleasure in exposing the folly of his father, and he mocked and ridiculed him in front of his brothers. The opposite of the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. He does the opposite. Here he exposes his father. finds Pleasure in uncovering his father's nakedness. And here's the first thing I want you to write down under point number two. In response to Noah's sin, we see Ham, we see that sin is sinfully exposed through Ham. We see that sin is sinfully exposed through Ham in verse 22. His actions were meant to hurt his father, not help. Another word that comes to mind as I read Noah's actions is the word exploited. By exploiting his father's failure, Perhaps Ham was taking advantage of the situation in an ill-gotten desire to elevate himself if he could knock down his dad. In the end, Ham exploited his dad at his worst moment, at his worst hour, and the sin of Ham was just as grievous as the sin of his father. But Shem and Japheth, they had a different approach than their brother Ham. They took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, they walked backwards uh, to cover up the nakedness of their dad. They had their faces turned away from their father. They didn't see his nakedness. So rather than oogle at their dad and make a spectacle of his failure, they chose to preserve his dignity. Rather than further expose Noah's nakedness, they chose to cover up, not in a codependent way, but in a way that reflected grace. Where Ham saw and exploited the nakedness of his father, these boys turned away and refused to look upon it and refused to expose it. So the second thing we see under point number two is, yes, sin is sinfully exposed, but through Shem and Japheth, we see sin graciously covered. We see sin graciously covered. And you know what? When I step back and I consider this scene, and I, you know, it's just, it's just a couple of verses, and there's so much packed in, I mean, there's so much we don't know about, but there's so much more than the kind of the sanitized way we have a tendency to read these verses. When I, when I consider this entire situation, there's so many practical implications When I look at Noah, this righteous man, I mean, he was a faithful man, a blameless man, according to the previous text. He's a guy who no doubt had been mightily used by God. He's mentioned in Hebrews as as being a man of incredible faith. When I see him, this once sterling Noah, blackout drunk, naked, and shameful in his tent, when I see him tainted with the drunkenness of sin, it serves as a warning to me. I ask myself, will I finish strong? Will I rest on what God did yesterday? Will I rest on previous obediences and excuse myself from present-day obedience? Will I fall away in my old age? One of the things being a pastor, which is a challenge, is that uh, you guys see me in my best hour of the week. Uh, My family sees me all the other hours of the week. And one of the great challenges of being a pastor is congruency. Like one of the things I desperately don't want for my kids and my wife is to see one man up here and another man at home. And I wish I could say that there's always been congruency, but there simply has not been. You see my best hour every week. My kids see my worst hour. My wife sees my worst hour. And my kids have kind of developed this this way of calling me into account. It's kind of funny if it wasn't so sad. Um, Like when I say something that's inappropriate which I sometimes do. When I lose my temper or I act in a way that's not honoring to God or that's not the sterling Pastor Paul you see on Sunday morning, my kids will say something like, yada, 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 Pastor Paul. (laughs) And that's just sticking it in my ribs. I know exactly what they mean. Like, you're not congruent. You're not, like, do you think, if I recorded you and played that for the church on Sunday, how do you think the congregation would respond, Father? I used to work for a guy who's da- he was a senior pastor, and his daughter one time stood in front of the church with a giant cardboard sign, and it said, for one dollar, I'll tell you what my dad's really like. <laughs> the truth is, I, I, as I look at Noah, I ask myself, this is an issue of congruency, right? Here's a guy who was mightily used of God at a horrible moment. Kent Hughes points out this. He says, when all the world was against Noah, he faced scorn and violence straight up. But in his vineyard among those of his own who needed no proof of his virtue, he relaxed, he let down his guard, he slipped into drunkenness, and in his drunkenness he did shameful things. I'm reminded of the dangerous way drunkenness strips us of our inhibitions, makes us vulnerable, and leads us to do things with which we have great regret. My guess is if we could talk behind closed doors, you might have some stories to tell about shameful things you've done when you were under the influence. Marcus Dodd, a theologian, puts it this way. He says, Noah is not the only man who walked uprightly and kept his garment unspotted from the world so long as the eye of man was on him, but who is lain uncovered in his own tent floor. As someone told me last week, beyond every mountaintop often lies a deep valley. I'm mindful of the words of Jesus to the hypocritical Pharisees. Do you remember what he said to them in Luke chapter 12? Jesus said to the Pharisees, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That causes me to shudder. When we're behind closed doors and the eyes of others aren't upon us, we can so easily turn away from godliness, turn towards sloth, turn towards sinful indulgence. All too often, the walls of our own homes witness impatient anger and slanderous words and worldly indulgence and spiritual apathy and perverse sensualities that if the walls could speak, would heap condemnation upon us. So thankful that when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Kent Hughes goes on to say this. He said, Could it be that the scriptures record Noah's fall in order to instruct us that this great man who had so honored God was a flawed man, he was a sinner? And thus, in need of continued grace, sin came with him into the new world. The human predicament survived intact. This was the painful new world reality. So we look at Noah, and there's some practical implications there. But then let's look at Ham. When I consider the actions of Ham in light of his father's sin, I think of the tendency I have to do the same thing. Maybe you have the same tendency at times. I've heard it said that the Christian church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Perhaps you've been a part of a situation where someone you know, a Christ follower, maybe even a Christian leader, fell into sinful behavior. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can shine a flashlight on that failure in a way that's graceless and designed to damage. I see two extremes when we we witness a brother or a sister in Christ fall into sin. I, I see two extremes that we can sometimes fall into as Christians. May, maybe, you're, maybe you're not on either one of these extremes, but the two extremes I can often see is when we're looking at someone who's stumbling into sin, whatever kind of sin that may, that may be, sexual or immoral or some other kind of sin, uh, we, we can either respond with passivity and codependent behavior. We're out of fear. We don't say anything. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. So we just watch idly by as our brother or sister walks into destruction. The other extreme that I see sometimes is a graceless condemnation that's laced with gossip. We just seek to wound with our words, destroy someone, and if we we're honest with the inner psychology of ourselves, by tearing down the other person by proxy, I'm elevating myself. I'm not saying you're there. I'm saying those are the two extremes that I often see. I think the great test that you and I need to apply to ourselves when we are, when we are considering how to care for or love Someone in our life, or a Christian brother or sister who may be sinning. Maybe they're even sinning against us. The, 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 great, the great thing that we can often, often apply to our own inner world is say, God, in my engaging with this person, is my heart motive to is my heart motive to seek them, to seek restoration in their life, to see them fully restored to God, confess, repent, find right standing with God. Is that really my heart motive in the way I'm acting right now? Or if I'm honest, with my heart motive is is there a desire to, to, to condemn them? And to see them destroyed. See, only you can answer, the, answer that question because only you know what's going on in your heart. Oftentimes we can clothe our religious language in the words of grace, but really in our heart we're, designing, we're really desiring to wound someone who's, who's struggling. I'm reminded of the words of the author of Hebrews. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We are to fight for one another. How different would our relationships look? How different might the the church, the global church look if this was a core value that we absolutely lived out, this fighting for one another, this responding in grace and with a desire to see people restored to God? How different would the church look if as brothers and sisters we saw to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God? If in humility and love we fought for one another, we fought to see one another fully restored to God? Ham didn't. Ham exploited When I consider the actions of Shem and Japheth, it causes me to ask, am I in the camp of Ham or am I in the camp of of Shem and Japheth? When I see them showing grace to their father at his worst moment, when I see them taking thoughtful measures, not to be codependent on his failure, but to not heap needless shame and condemnation upon him by covering him up. I'm reminded of the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4.8. Peter, you've heard these words before. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I see these sons loving their father, literally covering his sin. What a beautiful and selfless act they did on behalf of their dad. The actions of Shem and Japheth mimic the actions of God. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and suddenly their eyes were open, and they were aware of their sin and aware of their shame? Do you remember what God did? He sacrificed an animal. He covered Adam and Eve with skins. He covered them up in their shame. When I see Japheth and Shem walking backwards and covering their father, they're doing the same thing. And ultimately, this is the work of Jesus. Ultimately, when I think of covering the covering of sin, I think of the work that Jesus Christ has done for you and me on the cross. He, he clothed himself in our wretchedness and he gave us and clothed us in his righteousness so that God sees our sin no more. You see, this is... This is the character of God when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As we look at this post-flood world, we see post-flood people, we see post-flood sin. And lastly, let's take a look at what Noah does after he wakes from his drunken stupor. I want to read the text again, then we'll unpack it, beginning in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants, shall he be to his brother's? He said also, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Finally, in the post-flood world, the final thing where I'm going to have you write down today is simply this. We see the post-flood curse and blessing. Finally, in the post-flood world, we see the post-flood curse and blessing. Some have called this the oracles of Noah. These are the only recorded words of Noah in all of Scripture, these three verses. In fact, since this announcement that Noah spoke over his sons, this cursing and this blessing were, were recorded, then immediately we read of Noah's death. Some have said this, this even reads as the last will and testament of Noah. He looks at his son Ham and he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Canaan, this is the third time that's been mentioned, by the way. And Canaan is the, is the youngest son of Ham. So Noah curses his grandson. Some have have observed this curse and they they found it both perplexing and even to be too harsh. If if Ham was the one that offended Noah, why is Noah cursing Canaan? And and if all Ham did was see his naked dad when he was drunk and tell his brothers, this this, this, this eternal cursedness, doesn't that feel like a a disproportionate punishment to what Ham had done? This is the question many Bible readers have asked as they've read this text. Why are Noah's curses so harsh? And honestly, the Bible doesn't give us pages and pages of detail as to why. As we are reading the creation account, one of the things I shared with you is that the, the author of Genesis is not concerned with satisfying our human curiosities. God, in his wisdom, inspired Moses to write the words, and this is the word God wants, and, and for God, for some reason, has chosen not to extrapolate the details of what was going on between Ham and Noah and Canaan. Over the years, many scholars have have tried to read into the text and figure out what exactly was going on. I read this week that many have regarded the actions of the three sons and Noah as the narrative, as the narrative describes them to be a mere outline of a much more sinister deed. Probably some truth to that. Some have stated in, in a speculative way that, that Noah's actions were beyond simply being drunk and naked, and they have implied that Noah was engaged in much more sinister and grievous sexual, sexual offenses. Some have looked at the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, and they see that that's an idiom. And this idiom could potentially point to many more grievous, sexually related things that Noah might have done in his tent when he was drunk on that day. Some have speculated that Ham's actions against his father go far beyond the face value of what we read here. He didn't just observe his father's nakedness, they say. Some have made the argument that Ham had an incestual relationship with his own mother. There is very limited, but some textual evidence to support that, but it's it's scant at best. Some have speculated that Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, was actually the incestuous byproduct of Ham's relationship with his mother. Hence, Noah's anger towards Canaan. Ultimately, it's all speculation. There's been books written on it, but it's all speculation. All we know is what the text has shared with us. Noah curses canaan in his curse it was not something that was born out of his own imagination he didn't angrily make it up i read this week that such curses had no power in themselves unless the lord fulfilled them god would bring his curse about only if it was his desire to do so Noah's not god but he's speaking prophetically here and it was god's desire to bring about this curse Noah was speaking words over Ham and Shem and Japheth and his words were prophetic because this was the intent of God. And then he, he speaks blessing over Shem and Japheth. And just as it was surprising to see God's curse towards Ham be directed at Canaan, similarly here it's surprising to see Noah's blessing directed toward the Lord and not Shem. Look at what it says in verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah's blessing over Shem is, uh, is a blessing of the Lord. And this is the only time you read that word in this text. This is Yahweh. This is the personal name of God, the covenant name of God. Why would Noah direct his blessing toward the divine and not toward the human here in verse 26? Well, one theologian puts it this way. By directing the blessing to Yahweh instead of Shem, the narrator subordinates the human actors to the divine actor. It is Yahweh rather than Shem who is to be praised. And since this is the only mention of Yahweh in our text, and since we know that Shem is the ancestor of Abraham in the nation of Israel, the use of the covenant name of God here suggests that Shem, on some level, was already in covenant relationship with the Lord. The curse upon Canaan and the blessings over Shem and Japheth have significant implications to this original audience, as you know. Centuries later, as we read through the book of Genesis and and Abram's interaction with the Canaanites, it's, 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 it's filled with corruption. The Canaanites were a corrupt people. And then later on in Leviticus chapter 18, as God is speaking to Moses, as Moses is preparing the people of Israel to go into Canaan to take the Holy Land, the promised land is God is preparing Moses to lead the people of Israel to do that very task in Leviticus 18. He says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan of which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then Leviticus 18, describing the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, uh, 24 times it uses the word nakedness. So so the author of Leviticus 18, Moses, he doesn't go into into, into sordid detail about the perversion and the corruption and the vile nature of the Canaanites to protect the ears of the reader. They use this word, this euphemism, nakedness, to speak to how depraved these Canaanites really were. This is the Canaanite origin story. And, And these Israelites, hearing this story in Genesis chapter 9, it would have informed them as they were going in to take Canaan, this land that God had promised them. The Canaanites were naked and shameless and an uncovered people. And so as you and I consider all of this, as we consider the blessing and the curse of Shem and Japheth, and, and, uh, and by contrast, Ham and Canaan, it really represents two different types of people, doesn't it? The one group has their nakedness covered by the help of God. The other group has or makes no attempt to cover their nakedness, but instead they, they chose to revel in it. Like Ham reveled in the nakedness of his father. To the one group, the line of Shem, there will be blessing. To the other group, the Canaanites, there will be only curse. Shem is the ancestor of the people Israel, the covenant people of God, to whom God's blessings were poured out. Ham and Canaan are the ancestors of the Canaanites, the enemy of God, to whom God's wrath will be poured out. And if you think about it, the same division exists today, doesn't it? Those who have had their sin covered by the blood of Jesus and those who have not. To those who have been forgiven in and through the work of Christ, there will be blessing. To those who revel in their nakedness apart from Christ, there will be only curse. Consider the words of King David in Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven is covered we see this thing this heartbeat this character trait this action of god when sin abounds grace abounds all the more this is the fruit of the gospel and so today is a communion sunday and as we begin to prepare our hearts to break bread to to come to the lord's table look with me one last time at verse 27 Noah says to Japheth, may, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Yes. Reading Genesis out loud. What an interesting phrase, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth and his ancestors were invited by Noah and really God speaking through Noah to dwell in the tents of blessed Shem. Shem is the ancestor of Israel, the covenant people of God. And Japheth, who's outside of that covenant people of God, is being blessed with the opportunity to come and dwell in the tents of Shem. Which means the descendants of Japheth. These people that spread across the known world people groups that encompass entire regions and entire continents noah 's blessing that Japheth is to dwell in the tents of Shem is god's sharing his blessing of Shem with those outside of shem 's line that's us that's us. unless you're unless you're maybe 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 you're Jewish, but we're the ones that are outside of shem 's line we are like the descendants of Japheth who've been given this blessing to dwell in his tents. Those of us that are outside, in other words, God's blessings weren't contained to just the Jews. Gentiles are included in this blessing as well. And this wouldn't take full shape or come into full view until the New Testament when Jesus came. And he removed the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And he invited all to come to him. I'm mindful of the words of, of John in, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. To all who believe Jesus and accepted him, they are given the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Today, as you and I sit in this place, as we prepare to break bread and to take the cup, if we, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, as, as we come to the table of the Lord, in essence, we are entering into the tent of Shem, we are recipients of this blessing of inclusion. As the world around us, and I don't need to convince you of this, as the world around us buckles under the weight of division and social and political and racial tension threatened threaten to tear our country and our world apart, as we look outside our homes, as we look into the world, and disunity is just the norm, the blessing of God's invitation to dwell in unity in his tent is of tremendous hope. I lived in a city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the most segregated city in America. Racial tensions that go back 100 plus years. And we did gospel work there. Because I watched the millions and billions of public dollars that were spent to try to improve schools and improve race relations and dissolve the lines of poverty, did nothing. Made it worse. Politicians made it worse, made it worse, made it worse. And as I watched the city of Milwaukee and the the fractured nature of that city, I became absolutely convinced, and I'm more convinced now than ever, that the hope that our world needs is the hope of the gospel. In and through the work of Christ, God invites us in, into the tent of Shem, to the family of God, to the table that we're about to partake in. This is the work of God. This is this is in a disunified, disgruntled, divided world. How beautiful is, is the family of God. And do you remember what Jesus said would be the unifying, like the distinguishing marker of the people of God? The world will know you by your... The world will know you by your love, right? I mean, think of how how weary are you of watching the news at night? How weary are you of seeing stones hurled, Molotov cocktails, vicious words, division, division, division? How beautiful the family of God dwelling together in the tent of Shem in unity around the table of God. How beautiful. Our world doesn't need more government programs, don't need more slick politicians, our world needs the gospel, amen? As I look at this, I'm reminded of how the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 3, verse 29, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Today the gospel knows no boundaries. It goes to the children of Ham and Shem and Japheth with saving power to every tribe, tongue, language, and people group across the face of the world. The gospel is not new. We saw the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 as, as God cursed Satan and said that, the, that the, his, the, the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan. He preserved that seed through putting Noah on an ark. We see the gospel in, in, in Tam and Shem's tent being opened to all. We see the gospel through the ministry of of Abram and, and Noah and Moses and David through the prophets. Ultimately we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus according to 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. When sin abounds grace abounds all the more. This is the fruit of the gospel. Jesus has become the ultimate covering for our sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our hope. So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we do so as men and women who, by the grace of God, have been invited to dwell together as children of God. And as I imagine our Father in heaven looking down upon us, I know how we tend to kick and fight and punch and scream, rebel against God and run away in rebellion. I just imagine, like my, my friend Ben, whispering to his sons and his daughters, I, I imagine God whispering to us, no matter how much you run and fight and kick, my love for you will never end. This will always be your home. I will always be your father. Nothing that you can do will ever change that. When sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Would you pray with me? Father, so thankful for your word. So thankful for an opportunity this morning, God, that you have given us to gather in this place and to to fix our eyes on, on you. God, even as we unpack this episode, this painful, sinful episode in Genesis 9, God, we are reminded, even as Noah stumbles into sin and makes a fool of himself, God, we're reminded that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God, would that be true today in our lives, God? For those of us... Uh, who are here God and we have confessed you as our lord and as our savior as we prepare our hearts to come to the lord's table God would you would you give us by the by the working of your spirit God give us the ability in this moment to examine ourselves God that we don't take these elements in an unworthy way God as we as we take these elements today God may they be an may this be an act of faith, an act of worship, a declaration of our faith. And God, may it be a unifying thing. Though we're sitting in chairs and all facing forward, God, would you, would you enable us to just look around and see the beauty of the body of Christ, the, the love that is to be present within your body, God, the unity that only you can bring. So God, as we take the cup, as we take the bread, God, would you be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it and then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you're ready, would you take the bread? the same way Paul continues he says that Jesus took a cup of wine after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it he goes on to say for every time you eat of this bread and drink this cup you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again when you're ready take the cup Father, I thank you for this ordinance that you have given us, this simple ordinance to take a a little bit of bread and a cup. God, as we remember your body that was broken for us, as as we remember your blood that was shed for us, as we take these elements, God, may it be truly, God, an act of worship. Would you use this simple act, God, this simple act to reorient our hearts and our minds vertically upon you? And God, as we, as, we, as we worship you, God, as we, as we fix our eyes on you, as we think of what you have done through your son Jesus to, to bring us forgiveness and new life and salvation, God, we're also meant to take this meal in community. God, help us to look to our left and to our right today. God, help us to, to recognize our need for one another in this place. God, we're so thankful that you have removed the dividing wall of hostility, how you have opened up the tent of Shem, and we can gather together as your family. God, would you continue to grow our church and our worship of you and our love for one another, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but so as an unbelieving, divided world looks upon your church, they would see a beautiful community, a community centered on Christ, a community that exemplifies his love. God, use us. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.